So, it is Resurrection Sunday. Christ is risen, we say. He's risen indeed. If I may be so bold to ask, so what? Why is the resurrection such a big deal? Why make such a big thing out of it? Why does it matter so much? Are we overdoing it at all today with uh, the energy and excitement, you know, that we bring into the room? Was the resurrection even necessary? You know, couldn't Jesus, Jesus, if he was the Son of God and he really died for our sins, even if that all actually happened, uh, couldn't he have just done that? Died for our sins and then returned to heaven in spirit. Why be raised bodily? And while we're at it, are we really all that sure that it actually happened? You may or may not be asking those kinds of questions today, but interestingly, the early church was asking them, even in the first century. So the Apostle Paul wrote a section of his letter to the Corinthians, to the Corinthian church, to address these kinds of questions about the resurrection of Jesus. Did it really happen? And why does it matter? And the short answer, spoiler, is that, yeah, it happened. And yes, it matters. It matters if you want hope. Journalist Amanda Ripley, just last week, she did an opinion piece for the Washington Post where she kind of took the journalism industry to the woodshed for its obvious lack of hope these days. She asserted that journalism is essentially making things worse for our society by only or primarily reporting on the bad stuff. Everything is always this and never this But she argues that, you know, in all the research of the last 30 years, plus just common wisdom, it shows that people cannot live without hope. Psychologists will tell you that what motivates people to keep living and keep going, even when things are hard, is a sense of hope. Now, Amanda Ripley rightly points out that hope often sounds vague and fluffy, like sunshine behind a cloud with a rainbow. And it may even sound like a gateway drug to denial or delusion of how things really are. She says vague, ungrounded hope is really just toxic optimism. Hope needs a reason. It needs something concrete to stand on to find a way forward. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at portions of that chapter today. It gives us three reasons why the resurrection matters and three ways why the resurrection of Jesus gives us concrete hope. Hope in our doubts, hope in our darkness, and even hope in our death. So hope in our doubts, hope in our darkness, and hope in our death. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, it'll just be up here on the screen. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, or the good news which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word or message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. How does the resurrection give us hope for our doubts? We live in an age of doubt, 
and cynicism about the ability to believe anything with any level of certainty, especially when it comes to spiritual or religious ideas. There's so many religions out there, how can you even tell which one's right or wrong? It's like cereals on the cereal aisle in the grocery store. How can you know which one is right? And isn't science really the only thing that can tell us true from false? Religious claims are beyond the realm of science, so there's just no way to know, is there? No way to be sure. And so you have many people today who would identify as spiritual, but not religious. Meaning they see how it's likely that there's some sort of higher power or creator or spiritual realm that just intuitively makes sense to them, but they would not affiliate with any particular religious set of beliefs. They're uncertain about how accurate any religious claims could really be. And on one hand, this makes a lot of sense. If all religious claims are off the grid, essentially, with no way to examine them or reason your way through them. But here's where I think Christianity offers something totally unique amongst religions and worldviews because it is perhaps the most disprovable of them all. Now, don't misunderstand me. I did not say it's the most disproven of them all, but the most disprovable. In other words, it's the most testable. Christianity is unique amongst religions in that it says at one point in time, God actually stepped into history, lived among us, did miracles, died for us, and was raised bodily from the grave. It had a public start with publicly disprovable claims that would have been fairly easy to extinguish. All you've got to do is exhume a body. But there was apparently no body to exhume. More on that later. But most religions start with one person's private encounter with God that no one else saw or heard, and thus no one else can disprove. It's the word of one person, and, you know, I mean, who are you to say that they didn't have a genuine encounter with God? Or most religions are based on teachings or principles from a guru that don't necessarily depend on anything having having happened in history. So let's just say that, you know, I want to introduce one of my single guy friends uh, here at North Wake to a girl who I think would be a really, they'd be a really great match for each other. So I tell him about this girl. You know, she's so fun to be around. She's a deeply kind person. I think she'll really fulfill a lot of the things that you're looking for in someone. And, oh, she's very, very pretty. Uh, There's just one catch. She's not real. She doesn't actually exist. But don't let that slow you down. I think you two will be perfect for each other. You know. He says, no thanks. I prefer my relationships to be with actual people. You know, I feel the same about my relationship with God. And I think Christianity is unique in, in that it gives you something in history to work with. Something you can test. It may not give you everything you wished for in terms of proof. But it does at least give you a starting point, something tangible to weigh and consider whether or not it is real. So in the passage you just read, that you heard read, Paul trots out three lines of evidence. Evidence from the scriptures, evidence from the eyewitnesses, and evidence from the first Christians. So first, evidence from the scriptures. Notice that Paul says this twice. He says that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And what he's talking about there is the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, 
with Genesis and Isaiah and all that stuff. And he's saying that if, if you read the Old Testament, you realize there's all this unresolved stuff about how God and hum, humanity are put at odds by sin. But there's also these mysterious and hopeful themes that God will someday step into the world and he'll, he'll save us, he'll do something about it. And so the New Testament authors, they go to great lengths to point out that all these themes of hope and rescue seem to be fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is no great secret, but I'm going to let you in on it today. The Old Testament was written before the New Testament. I do have a master's degree uh, in theology. I worked really hard to tell you that. So make sure you write that down. The Old Testament written before the New Testament. So what do you make of all that the New Testament authors say about Jesus? Were they just making up legends about his life so that they matched up with these Old Testament prophecies? But the New Testament doesn't read like other ancient legendary accounts, so well, maybe they just lied about him and made the stories up. Well, let's talk about them. This is the second line of evidence that Paul gives you, the eyewitnesses. Paul says that after Christ was raised, he appeared, first to Cephas, Peter, then to the other 12 disciples. Some say also, well, maybe these first disciples stole Jesus' dead body and hid it and then went on to tell everyone that he was the risen Son of God and start their own new new religion. This also just seems strange, though, given that they would all go on to suffer terribly and die for a scheme that they all fabricated. Chuck Colson was a wily and ruthless lawyer who served as uh, special counsel to President Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal. And after Colson was convicted of obstruction of justice and then sentenced to prison, he actually converted to Christianity. Interestingly, his role in the Watergate scandal actually helped him make that decision. Here's what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. That's the evidence from the eyewitnesses. And then last, the evidence from the first Christians. Paul broadens his reference list beyond the first disciples to other Christians. 500 people, supposedly, who saw Jesus at one time, which also makes it hard to see how the disciples could have just had a bad grief trip when their master died and saw Jesus in hallucinations, as some have suggested. Not usually a group experience, hallucinations. He then appeared to James, the earthly brother of Jesus, who did not believe him to be the Messiah until after his resurrection. Then he becomes a leader in the early church. And finally, Jesus appears to Paul himself. Paul goes on to say that anyone at that time could go talk to these people and ask them about the resurrection if they wanted to. Most of them are still alive, he says, though some have died. You see, he's writing within the lifetime of these witnesses. It's like footnotes in an ancient document. He's inviting verification. Trust, but verify, he'll say. Why do that? Why give reference checks? if your story is bogus. People today tend to think that ancient people were just more easily duped than us moderns to believe spurious religious claims. And I don't know if that's true or not, 
But realize Paul was writing about ancient monotheistic first century Jews believing that a man was actually the Son of God. There was no group of people on the planet less predisposed to believe such a thing. The Israelites wouldn't even say God's name out loud. They wouldn't write it, spell it out fully, much less believe that a man could be the Son of God. Paul himself was one of those Jews who had every reason to not become a Christian. So you're not talking about ancient polytheistic Greeks starting a religion about a deified human. That would be conceivable. But first century Jews would be the least likely group of people on the planet to claim that God himself would take on human flesh, dwell among us, be crucified, and rise from the dead. No way. In the words of Princess Bride, inconceivable. (laughs) Now, if you want to read more on that argument, and I mean really read some door-stopping weight-level scholarly works, I'd point you to N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God or Mike Lacona's The Resurrection of Jesus. But if you'd like to read less than 100 pages on the subject to get you started, I would recommend Rebecca McLaughlin's little book, Is Easter Unbelievable? Less than 100 pages. And I'm happy to give this copy to anybody today. If you're here and you're questioning or doubting and considering the truth of Christianity, feel free. This is yours. Just come see me at the end. And listen, I, I know that even considering the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact is a real stretch for us. It is. Dead people don't walk out of funeral homes. What makes Jesus any different? You might say, yeah, Jesus may not have been a legend. His disciples may not have stolen his body or hallucinated his appearances, but he cannot have been raised from the dead. That sort of thing just does not happen. But don't you see, that says just as much about us and our modern unprovable assumptions that there's not a God who could actually interact with the world. Ian Hutchison, who's an MIT nuclear science professor who believes in the resurrection of Jesus, he says miracles are inherently abnormal but not impossible. Author Fleming Rutledge says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, you never would have heard of him. What she means by that is a crucified Jew in the first century in the Roman Empire has no reason at all for being remembered in history. Romans knew how to wipe someone's memory off the map. Crucifixion was so shameful, debasing, socially embarrassing that it took them off the social register and off the face of history. Rutledge points out that we know of no names of ancient crucified persons before Jesus Christ. And yet, with Jesus, we have someone who should not have but did make a big splash on the ancient and modern world. Historians now date things BCE and CE in history books to replace uh, the BC and AD language, but the dates are still the same. It reflects the era before Christ And then Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Something happened in Israel in the first century AD that made a non-ignorable mark on our world even today. So if you're going to take your history and your calendar seriously, you have to figure out what to do with Jesus Christ. Even if it requires the intellectual courage to reconsider some of your own assumptions about reality. So why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? You may have some doubts, but the resurrection gives you something to go on. It gives you a place to start. It gives you somewhere to take your doubts and to do the hard work of wrestling with what happened in our planet's history. And you may find there's much more hope here than you realized. 
hope for our doubts. Secondly, I think the resurrection gives us hope in our darkness. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 14. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then skip down to verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. But what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why do I say the resurrection brings hope to our darkness? See what Paul says here. He points out that without Jesus' resurrection, you have no real hope for your inner demons or your outer adversities. What does Paul mean by saying if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins? Well, think about it. Even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that doesn't mean there's not a God or that you might not still be held accountable for your own sins. Pastor Tim Keller recounts a time when he talked with a dying man who said that even though he was not a Christian, he had an unshakable sense that somehow his misdeeds would follow him after his death. Yet even if you don't have this internal sense of guilt before God, that doesn't mean your condition is necessarily any better. There's a poem called The Horseman in the Lake of Constance, where a man in Switzerland, he rides his horse through a terrible blizzard over a frozen lake, unaware of the perpetual grave danger that he's in. And then ironically, when he arrives in town and learns that he barely survived the icy abyss, he falls off his horse, dead from the shock of it. You see, you can be in great trouble and not know about it. And yet, I think most of us do know about it at some level. We do have a sense in our still and honest moments that our evil deeds and evil thoughts, they haunt us like phantoms. We just don't know how to get rid of them. But if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, you do not have to remain in your sins. The things that no one knows about, the things you're you would be mortified if people could see the inner you, can be forgiven fully, finally, even for the really bad stuff. This is what gets Christians, genuine Christians, really excited about Easter, singing at the top of their lungs that they're no longer in their sins because the resurrection of Jesus is like a giant paid in full stamp across the record of my debts. It's the proof that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit in my lifetime. To no longer be in my sins also means that the addictions and life-dominating struggles of pride and lust and people-pleasing and anger and envy and racial superiority or cold-heartedness towards others no longer holds the same sway that it once did. Christians may still struggle mightily with these things, but they now have an ability and a desire to live for a God who's forgiven and set them free. The resurrection brings hope for our sins. But further, Paul teases out that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, how do you know your sufferings, your hardest, most gut-wrenching experience of, of your life really add up to anything? If we have hope in Christ for only this life, he says, 
we should be pitied. Why face danger? Why make sacrifices in this life? He says, if there's no resurrection, why not just break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is, to quote an old song. Because if there is no resurrection, neither your successes nor your sufferings, your big breaks nor your heartaches make a whit of difference in the end. Uh, Philosopher Thomas Nagel, who's not a Christian, he's a convinced atheist, he's brutally honest when he says, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read for thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. Or as a recent New York Times article said that Reading stories is an article about children's stories. It said, reading stories is a gentle way for a child to encounter the hardest truth. There are no happy endings. If there is no resurrection, then your life, according to Nagel and others who don't believe in a God or afterlife, amounts to nothing in the end. There's no happy ending. And Paul points out that if that's true, then Christians really deserve pity more than anything else. Because genuine Christians will be making sacrifices for their faith, not finding their best life in the here and now. And these poor women that we just commissioned today are going to move to these far away, hard places, away from the safety and comforts of home and the presence of family and friends. For what? It is not worth it if it's just for some religion that's made up or makes us feel good like a lucky rabbit's foot. Why does the resurrection matter? If Christ has been raised from the dead, then everything you have done and everything you have suffered really matters. And everything you have lost can be regained. Your suffering has meaning. You can have hope that they were not wasted, but will be healed and made up for a thousand times over in the resurrection. If Christ is risen, you can have hope that in the deepest and darkest places of your life, If Christ has risen, then the story of the world and your story can have the happy ending for which we all long for, even in death. Hope in our death. Look at verses 51 through 57 with me. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes from the Old Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's teaching that one day not even death will hold those who love and trust Jesus Christ. Death will have its stinger removed and will not have the final blow. This is is quite a claim. You know, because it certainly feels... These days, most days, that death does sting and death always seems to win. Just this past week, 
back home in Georgia, we buried my granddad, Foy Clifford Randall. It's a photo of me and granddaddy and one of my sons. My youngest son, Landon, gets his middle name Foy from him. I loved him very much. I don't bring this up today for sentimental or emotional reasons for your pity, but because the reality of death is very stark and very raw for me this week. Death can seem so far off and non-threatening until you're face to face with it. And then it is painful. It's painful to watch someone die. It's painful to bear their death. Death is the ultimate enemy because it rips away one by one, person by person, the things that makes our lives most meaningful, the love relationships that we have with other people. And in the end, it takes us to ripping us away from those who loved us. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, okay, is the resurrection of Jesus the real deal or not? This isn't just some church holiday or cultural holiday or Easter egg hunt. This either matters more than anything else in the world or it is a big, stupid hoax. Culturally, we just say that death is a natural part of life. It's nothing to be afraid of, like Mufasa and the Lion King when he tells Simba that just like the lions eat the antelopes, eventually the lions will die and fertilize the grass, which will feed the antelopes, the cue, the circle of life. But we also keep death in our culture at arm's length. We outsource it to hospitals and nursing homes because up close and personal, death is a formidable opponent and our deepest intuitions recoil at it. Philosopher Peter Kraft tells a story of a seven-year-old boy whose three-year-old cousin died tragically. When he asked his mother what had become of his cousin, she tried to answer as honestly as she could as a secular person without any faith. She said, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all come. Death is a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when you see the earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that it's your cousin's life that is fertilizing those flowers. The little boy's honest response is your deepest response too. He ran out of the room screaming, but I don't want him to be fertilizer. You see, we naturally avoid and hate death. CNBC predicts that the death delay industry in medicine with things like 3D printed organs and nanobots that clear out plaque in our arteries will see explosive growth to the tune of $600 billion in the near future. But honestly, and Disclaimer, I'm all for prolonging quality of life. Honestly, it feels a little bit like Texas Christian University if they were to ask for five more minutes on the clock against the Georgia Bulldogs in this year's college football national championship. The score at the end of the game was 65 to 7. Five more minutes. It's not going to change the outcome. But if Christ is risen, this is a game changer. Thanks be to God, Paul writes, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection matters because it means that you can have resurrection too. If Christ is risen and you trust in him, you can face your own death with courage and hope because there will come a day where you can sing again at the top of your lungs, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because the sting of death is sin. Sin is the ultimate cause of death and alienation from God. But if what Paul said at the beginning of our chapter is true, that Christ died for your sins, 
And that means he took the sting of death and the poison of our sin right into himself for you and for me on the cross so that there would be no sting left for us. And if Christ is risen, then he's the living Lord of life who's alive today to offer this victory to any who will turn to him as their rescuer and savior and king. And Paul says, it's God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The risen Christ lives today to offer you hope and life as a gift. It's not something that you can muster up or earn yourself. It has been earned for you and is offered to you. If you want a love that will last, then you need a love that is stronger than death and a hope that can outlive the grave. Only in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, can you have this hope. Why does the resurrection matter? Because only here can you find the happy ending that your soul longs for. Only here can you have hope in your doubt, hope in your darkness, and yes, hope in your death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you in thanks that you rolled the stone away, that you gave us something to work with. You invited us in to see. You were not here, but you were risen. You appeared to your disciples and to many others to give us something to go on, to help our faith, to help our doubt. Lord Jesus, you give us hope today in our own dark places, the places we are least proud of in our lives, the sufferings we have, no hope that they'll amount to anything or mean anything or will ever get any better. Yes, even for our last day today, Jesus, you offer us hope. So I pray especially for, for anyone here that does not have that hope because they don't know you. I pray that even now you would speak to them as the living Lord of the universe, the King of life and death, that they would know that you are real and you stand here today to offer them life and hope in your name. Meet us today, Christ, as we long and hope for you. And it's through you we pray to the Father who's reconciled us with himself by your life and death and resurrection. Amen.